Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on today's show, a year-long investigation into the court fees that judges charge defendants. A federal appeals court found it to be a conflict of interest. A reporter will tell us about how judges are spending that money, money that's supposed to go to necessary costs incurred by the courts. Also, how a carpool and vanpool system is trying to beat worsening traffic congestion in the capital city. But first, a group of conservative state legislators last year started the Louisiana Freedom Caucus. It's modeled after the Congressional Freedom Caucus, a diverse group that has succeeded in, among other things, throwing the U.S. House speakership in turmoil. This past week, the Louisiana Illuminator published reporting demonstrating how the Louisiana Freedom Caucus sent anti-LGBTQ text messages to voters on Election Day and how some of Louisiana's elected officials helped fund that PAC. Julio Donahue reported on this for the Louisiana Illuminator. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So give us some background. Who is this PAC? So the Freedom Caucus PAC, it's hard to say whether they're affiliated with the Freedom Caucus because I guess that's a matter of opinion. Um, it was the PAC that was set up when the Freedom Caucus came to Louisiana. And unlike other caucuses in our state legislature, the Freedom Caucus really is supported and funded through a national group that I think is connected to the Freedom Caucus in Congress. So our other caucuses down here for the most part. I mean, the Republican and Democratic caucus get money from the national party sometime, but for the most part, they're kind of like organically homegrown, if you will. The Freedom Caucus, Alan Sebaugh, who is a state senator from the Shreveport area, was contacted about setting it up, and they got a lot of support from a national group. And I guess one of the things they were asked was to set up a PAC to help get uh, very conservative Republicans elected and also to protect incumbents who were in the Freedom Caucus. Um, and so that's where the Freedom Caucus PAC came from. But the Freedom Caucus leadership says that they, I guess, essentially lost control of the PAC and the PAC started doing things that they didn't necessarily agree with. I see. So then tell me what kind of political messaging is this PAC contributing to the political discourse here in Louisiana? Tell me about those anti-LGBTQ messages that they sent out on Election Day, and who do they target? So it's not a very large PAC. Um, they only raised between April and I would say the end of December $150,000. They sent out mostly text messages that were targeting voters in specific legislative races, the ones that seemed to upset people and got people contacting me, and I'm sure other reporters, um, were ones that were opposing candidates, and they had a very um, critical, sharp message to them. Uh, in one case, one of the texts was uh, targeting a openly gay Republican here in Baton Rouge who was running for the state house and um, strongly implied that he was maybe not... Uh, appropriate candidate for the state house because of his sexuality and then another text went out in the uh, kenner area where representative joe stagney lives and it was opposed to representative stagney and it implied representative stagney had made sexual advances on teenagers which uh is not true but it sort of conflated a a scandal he had previously had, and also kind of brought in some of his votes uh, opposing some restrictions on transgender children, uh, things that I think Representative Stagney would say he absolutely does not support. I see. 
going back to funding now, who are this PAC's biggest donors? What elected officials are responsible for it? So um, the PAC, like I said, did not have very much money. Um, Some members who we have to assume are members of the Freedom Caucus, I should mention the Freedom Caucus doesn't reveal their members' names, so it's hard to kind of tell unless people out them. Um, Some members of the Freedom Caucus gave money to the PAC to kind of help get it started. And then there were a couple of other people who gave money to the PAC. There was a man named Barry Huggins who gave tens of thousands of dollars to the PAC. He was on the board of the PAC. He had been a West Baton Rouge council member at one point. Uh, Then there was a New Orleans businessman, John Kachachurian. He gave a lot of money to the PAC, probably somewhere around $30,000. And then another PAC that was supported by a bunch of very politically active businessmen gave money to this PAC. So this other PAC is supported by people like Boise Bollinger and Lane Grigsby, who are very prolific Republican donors. But it's hard to tell whether, you know, they had any involvement. And then I guess finally, I would say Attorney General Liz Merle was a special guest at one of the PAC's fundraisers, which brought in, from what I could tell, maybe as much as $22,000 for the PAC. So while she didn't give that money, she was one of the draws, if you will, to the event. I see. We're speaking with Julie O'Donohue of the Louisiana Illuminator. She reported on the anti-LGBTQ messaging sent out by the Louisiana Freedom Caucus on Election Day. Now, do you think any of our elected officials here in Louisiana directly funded this messaging? Do you have any reason to think they knew about it or were complicit in it? Well, so they were not on the board of the PAC, and so the leadership of the Freedom Caucus uh, has told me that they were not involved in this messaging, that they didn't make this decision that the board who was set up to run the PAC did. And I, I think I believe that that's probably the case. I would say that the person that was chosen to direct the PAC, which I have to think they knew about, um, is Scott McKay, who runs the conservative website, The Hayride. And he um, has a history of writing sort of similar essays or posts on his website um, that have similar tones and are also anti-LGBTQ. So I'm not sure, you know, I I could see a situation in which it wouldn't have come as a surprise is, I guess, what I was trying to say. I see. So what did the PAC have to say for its messaging? What did they have to say for themselves? Well, the PAC refused to talk to me. I would say that Mr. McKay, who is the chairman of the PAC, put a post up on his website about this issue, kind of defending the choices. He said that the openly gay Republican candidate that was targeted in Baton Rouge, they were targeting him because they didn't think that he could beat another candidate named Brandon Ivey, that they didn't want to get elected. And so they felt like they wanted to knock him out in the primary election because they thought that he would be a weak candidate. Tell me, what do the people who are targeted by this messaging think about it? Mr. Moak, who is the gay Republican who was targeted in the Baton Rouge area. Um, By the way, people may know that Mr. Moak is on the Baton Rouge Metro Council, so he is in elected office. I, I talked to him back in October he sort of told me he expected this to happen. He he did not expect it to happen until the runoff. I will say he and his campaign political consultant don't think that this text message is the reason he didn't make the runoff, for what it's worth. 
uh, Representative Stagney has said that he is frustrated that some First Amendment protections probably would make a lawsuit over this matter unsuccessful for him. And he's also said that he doesn't think that the Freedom Caucus members that say they had nothing to do with this pack, he thinks that they should reflect on the fact that they lent money and their names to this pack before sort of absolving themselves of whatever, you know, attack they made on him. Julio Donahue, reporter for the Louisiana Illuminator. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. In Louisiana, judges have a financial incentive to set high bail and to secure convictions. State law allows those judges to issue fees to criminal defendants and then to use that money to pay for court expenses, a situation that creates a conflict of interest, which was declared unconstitutional by a federal appeals court. During a year-long investigation for the WRKF, WWNO Newsroom, and Type Investigations, reporter Garrett Hazelwood found that judges sometimes use those funds to lease fancy cars and stay in beachside resorts. And Garrett joins us now to talk about that reporting. Thank you for being here, Garrett. Thanks for having me. Start by telling us more about what you found in your investigation. Yeah, so nearly every district court in the state has what's called a judicial expense fund. And these funds are controlled by the judges of that court, sometimes just a single judge. By law, judges are allowed to use the money for basically any purpose related to running the court. Now, some of the money in these funds comes from tax dollars and some from state grants, but a large chunk of it, up to 90% in some courts, comes from fines and fees that the judges issue. And like you mentioned, judges are spending this money in ways that sometimes blur the lines between the personal and the professional. Um, essentially, the more money they charge defendants, the more money they have to spend on phones or BMWs, even home security systems. And did you find that this conflict of interest is causing judges to rule in certain ways? Well, it's impossible to know what's going on in the mind of any judge when they make their rulings. And the judges I spoke to all stressed that their decisions are absolutely not affected in any way by these fees. But when you look at the situation, the conflict of interest at the heart of it is just incredibly glaring. When they set bail, a certain percentage of the amount that they set goes into their fund. And anytime they issue a conviction or someone pleads guilty, the judge charges them a fee that also goes directly into their expense account. Um, there are also hearings called ability to pay determinations, where judges have to consider whether or not to wipe away financial obligations that would cause a serious hardship to defendants. But if they do wipe away the fees, they're essentially taking away a source of the revenue that they rely on to pay their own phone bills, buy coffee and office supplies for the court, and pay staff salaries even. Uh, expenses that are clearly necessary to run the court. Hmm. So we're talking about court fees. What are these fees? What names are they known by? What are they for? Um, there is a patchwork of them. Um, one is called a bail bond premium fee. And so every time a judge sets bond, a percentage of it, I think it's $2 for every $100, goes into this fund. So that, that's one. Another one, they, they call them court costs in a lot of the financial documentation that I reviewed for this story. Um, 
but it's essentially a conviction fee. It's what I've been referring to as a conviction fee. So it's whenever anyone pleads guilty or is convicted of a crime in Louisiana, they're assessed this fee. In 2019, there was a federal court case about these expense funds. Can you tell us about that case and what happened as a result? Absolutely. Um, And I should stress that all of this appears to be legal. Often it's explicitly authorized by state law or attorney general opinions. Um, But we found judges using these expense funds to pay their home internet bills, buy an $850 cell phone in one case. One judge rented a two-bedroom beachfront condo in Florida for five people when he traveled to a judicial conference. Another stayed at the Ritz-Carlton in New Orleans when a seminar for judges was held there. And many judges are collecting a $600 a month cash reimbursement um, that they use to lease vehicles. Hmm. We're speaking with reporter Garrett Hazelwood about his year-long investigation into Louisiana's judicial expense funds. Garrett, it sounds like this is a situation that's ripe for reform. Are there any efforts underway to change things? So a federal court ruled in two separate civil rights cases against the judges in New Orleans, like I mentioned, um, saying that the use of these funds is unconstitutional. And now New Orleans judges no longer control those expense funds. But that's not true across the rest of the state in all the other district courts. I spoke to Micah West, who's a lawyer from the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's been fighting against these kinds of judicial fees. And he told me that courts, um, until they're forced to stop using this practice, as happened in New Orleans, they're unlikely to change. That's because lawmakers and judges have powerful incentives to maintain the status quo. Here's Micah. You know, the, the way the system is funded now really insulates courts from political accountability. Um, they, they kind of operate like this independent fiefdom. The way it is for most judges right now, they don't have to go to the state, parish, or city government to justify their spending. And for the legislators' part, as long as the courts generate their own revenue through these fines and fees, lawmakers don't have to raise taxes or allocate other money. The Louisiana Supreme Court told me that they're aware of the problem and working with the legislator to ensure that the courts are funded in a way that's constitutional. Uh, They also said that they're working to educate judges about the issue. But when a lawmaker recently introduced a bill that would tighten limits on judges' expense spending, six of the seven Supreme Court justices wrote a letter opposing it. And the seventh justice, Chief Justice John Weimer, spoke in favor of the bill at the hearing when it was debated. So there are powerful judges and lawmakers pushing for reform, but they're in the minority. Do we know if anything similar is happening in other states, or is this just a Louisiana thing? Um, Other states do collect fines and fees from criminal defendants and also use those funds to support their court systems. But Michael West told me that Louisiana stands alone in the extent to which it funds its courts on the back of defendants. Finally, what does this conflict of interest mean for people who are facing criminal charges in Louisiana? How does it affect them? Well, in my reporting, I spoke to a man named Cade Duplichin. In 2019, he was seen leaving through a hole in the fence of a scrapyard in Lafayette. He told me that he'd been sleeping near there during a period in which he was unhoused. The police picked him up as he was walking down the street. They found a few handfuls of nuts and bolts on him and charged him with felony burglary and then with uh, resisting arrest. He was jailed for nearly four months before even being arraigned, then pled not guilty and was returned to jail for another five and a half months while awaiting trial. After locking him up for almost 10 months, they offered him a choice. He could either stand trial and risk a 12-year maximum sentence, 
or plead guilty and be released with three years probation. Duplichan pleaded guilty and that resulted in the judge giving him a conviction fee that would go directly into the court's judicial expense fund. Here's Cade. I just couldn't take it no more. I just wanted to get out. So I just signed the papers. She also gave him a whole series of other fines and fees. So he was ultimately loaded up with almost $5,000 of court debt. He was still unhoused, had no cell phone, no car. He missed some court dates. He didn't check in with his parole officer, and the judge issued a warrant. Um, He was arrested again for petty theft and violating parole, and the judge sent him back to jail for another seven months. And that, of course, resulted in yet another conviction fee. And his story is an example of how the cycle of court debt and incarceration can be incredibly difficult to escape. And until this court funding system is reformed, incentives are going to remain for judges to set high fees and secure convictions. Interesting. Garrett Hazelwood is a reporter who investigated this story for Type Investigations and the WRKF WWNO Newsroom. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. The Capital Region Planning Commission in Baton Rouge is ramping up efforts to mitigate anticipated motor traffic issues that will arise as a result of the long-term multi-year construction project on Baton Rouge's Interstate 10. The construction has already begun. Some of us motorists have already started feeling it. But as that project moves along, we're expecting that disruption to get worse. Kenyatta Robertson is Program Manager for Travel Demand and Management at the Capital Region Planning Commission and is working to get more motorists off the road through a project called Commuter Crew. Kenyatta, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. So give us the quick introduction. What is this commuter crew? What's the problem that it's looking to solve in Baton Rouge? Right. So what the commuter crew program is set up to do is to encourage alternative transportation in our region. So when you think about alternative transportation, you think about different modes of getting people out of single vehicle occupancy rides and placing them together in a vehicle. That's carpool. It's van pool. It's biking. It's walking. And even better, it's teleworking. And just to kind of change the mindset a little bit of our commuters here, because this is not something that we're accustomed to here in the South, um, our program also incentivizes doing those things. And this is all coinciding with the deconstruction and construction of Interstate 10 in Baton Rouge, a project that's been much anticipated. What's the overall goal? What does it look like if you are successful? Right. So with the I-10 widening process right now, we know already on a daily basis here in the region, you go out on the roadways and they're already at capacity without having construction. So our particular program has been tasked by the federal government as well as TD on helping to reduce traffic congestion. How do we do that? Most larger metropolitan planning organizations you would have an HOV lane. Well, we're not getting that. So we're going to think outside the box and we're going to go with alternative transportation, getting people to ride together, to share their commutes together um, while this project is going on. And we're hoping that as many commuters would try this, they'll start to like it and it'll become a way of getting around here in our region. It seems like everybody in Baton Rouge drives. I yes. think that's about somewhere above 90 percent. Yes. Um, many cities are like this. Many others have good public transit. Why haven't we developed some of the kind of other transportation infrastructure other than roads for cars yeah. that, that other cities might have? 
And that's something that we're working on. It's just, like you said, it's never been a way of life for us. We kind of have that freedom to just get in our cars and go where we want to go when we want to go. Really never have to share our ride. But because of this construction project, this is going to be a game changer for us. It's going to look very different for our commuters. Your your 30-minute commuter, your hour commute to work is not going to look like that in a little bit. We're speaking with Kenyatta Robertson, Program Manager for Travel Demand Management at the Capital Region Planning Commission. So tell me a little bit more about Commuter Crew. How exactly does this thing work? I'm so excited you asked. So our program, so it's an app-based program. They download the app. You create an account, which takes just a matter of seconds, and you begin logging your trips. Well, Kenyatta, why do I need to log a trip, and what exactly is a trip? These trips are very important to us because we all know that data tells a story. So it tells us where the starting points are for our commuters and it also tells us where's the ending point uh where the most traffic is coming from who's paying for all this where's the funding coming from oh thanks that's a good question so the leadership and the chain of command for our program starts at federal highway administration so at the federal level they have deemed this very necessary as it relates to the traffic and congestion that we have here to have such a program so we're able to use that funding source in order to incentivize the program and to do all of the amazing outreach and education in the community that it takes to make this happen How do you convince people that carpooling is something they might want to try? It's very much an American thing, of course, to drive your own car, maintain your own independence, your autonomy with that car of your own, not relying on others, not taking that risk. How do you get them over that barrier? Money, 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 saving money. Um, People are looking to just save money, right? So if it takes $100 to fill up your vehicle a week, then why not carpool? Because then you're splitting your costs with another traveler. But it also gives you time to meet your coworkers, see what they're all about when you're riding with them. But the more that we can influence people that this helps cut down on traffic congestion, help cut down on the amount of time that it takes to get to work, and we are rewarding you to do so has been our largest benefit. Hmm. Do you think a successful carpool or vanpool program here in Baton Rouge could have long-term viability and lead to success and permanently keeping more cars off the road down the road when I-10 is finally widened? Um, Could it keep us from having to add another lane or two to Interstate 10 20 years down the road? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I think this all goes back to just behavior, right? It's just what we do on a consistent basis over and over and over and over again. And we've really never had to do that here. But because of the construction project, it gives us opportunities to start thinking different about how we commute and then having the option to have alternative modes available to us where that wasn't always the case for us. I can see this as something that will extend way beyond. Do you think after going through a project where we get people used to van pooling and carpooling from, say, the next parish over into the central part of the city, do you think we could ever get to a point where people decide, oh, maybe I would consider a commuter train if we if that ever got off the ground or some other sort of mass transit? Absolutely. I just think whatever is available to people, I think they would actually take it. But those options have to be available. So it'll take all of us working together in the transit and transportation world to make this um, doable for our commuters. But I definitely think in the future of Capital Region, it could be that way. 
Kenyatta Robertson is Program Manager for Travel Demand Management at the Capital Region Planning Commission. Thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us, Adam. And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. A thank you to reporter Garrett Hazelwood, Louisiana Illuminator reporter Julio Donahue, and Kenyatta Robertson of the Capital Region Planning Commission. Our managing producer is Lana Schreiber. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at 12 noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.